Brother Billy has both guns drawn He ain't been right since Vietnam Sweet home Alabama Play that dead band song Turn those speakers up full blast Play it all night long Welcome back to Excitable Boys Our mini-series that takes a look back At the dirty life and times of Warren Zevon In our last episode we discussed Zevon's origins as a folky songwriter, his often-overlooked debut album, the time he spent with the Everly Brothers, his self-titled record in 1976, and his commercial apex with the landmark 1978 album Excitable Boy, which featured his only breakthrough hit, Werewolves of London. I saw a werewolf with a Chinese menu in his hand Walking through the streets of Soho in the rain Two critically celebrated albums, along with a hit radio single, meant that Warren was closing out the 70s with some serious momentum. Unfortunately, much of it would be squandered away due to Warren's extreme alcohol addiction. He would open the 1980s freshly divorced and painfully aware that his worst habits were catching up with him. He was able to stave off his demons long enough to produce two impressive releases in 1980. First, a studio album called Bad Luck Streak and Dancing School, and then perhaps the greatest live album ever recorded, Stand in the Fire. Although critically well-received, these projects did not punch through commercially, so Warren's label gave him one last chance to score some chart success. Despite more impressive songwriting on 1982's The Envoy, the casual music fans simply did not show up, and he was promptly dropped from his label. If I do say so, I can't let go, and I don't take no for an answer. If I do say so, I can't let go. Losing his record deal drove Warren into a deep depression, which did not bode well for his attempts at sobriety. But thanks to a persistent young manager, Warren would form an unlikely partnership with one of the hippest young bands on college radio, which would get his career back on track. Furthermore, he would finally escape his personal demons and close out the decade clean and sober. He would also become friends with David Letterman, who would prove to be one of his greatest allies in show business. They were determined to have me play piano on one track, and uh, I told them, you know, they had to understand it was, uh, it was a matter of principle. They had to pay me. Mm -hmm. They had to pay me in cash on the spot. So Andy get, wanted to write me a check, you know. To get piano playing out of you. Yeah, right. Andy wanted to write me a check, and I told him that it just wouldn't do. So you held him up for 200 bucks cash to play piano on your own album. I felt kind of guilty about it <laughs> for five seconds. Warren's 1987 comeback record would be called Sentimental Hygiene, and it would include some of the best work of his career. And he would close out the decade with his personal life in a much better place than where he closed out the last one. Leave my monkey alone. 
So without further ado, let's take a look back at the middle part of Warren's career. Get yourself a big dish of beef chow mein, as over the next hour and change, my friend Chris and I will chronicle Warren's music and stories from this era. This is Excitable Boys Part 2, Warren Zevon in the 1980s. Excitable boy, they all said. Well, he's just an excitable boy. Belzer passed away. We are recording on the date that Richard Belzer sadly died. And I guess I didn't bring this up in the last episode, but Richard Belzer was actually Warren's opening act on the Excitable Boy Tour. I found a quote from Warren about Richard Belzer saying, They used to almost have to carry me out on a stretcher. I was laughing so hard at his act. And then, going the other way, on July 9th, 2013, Richard Belzer tweeted... I miss my dear friend Warren Zevon. Oh, werewolves of London. Someone from Warren's heyday social circle passes away today, relevant to the show because we are talking about Warren today. All right. Now that is coming after some even bigger news that broke a couple of weeks ago. Warren Zevon has been nominated to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, so I, I've been voting every day for Warren Zevon. Excellent. And your contributions are paying off because last I checked, Warren is currently in third place of the fan vote, only behind Cindy Lauper and George Michael. I did do a little bit of research, though, Joe, about okay. how the fan vote is tallied and how it works. So those five votes for the top five that are, are picked by fans, they are each given a single vote in the total vote, which is a 1,000 plus... Votes from people in the industry. So, like, even if Zevon ends up with a vote, it's 0.1% of the entire voting. It gives the illusion of yeah. choice for the fans. It's not wonderful, but I'm still going to do it just as a show of solidarity with uh, fellow excitable boys and girls, you know? <laughs> Yeah, and uh, it should come as no surprise because as big of a deal as it is that he is nominated. At its core, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a complete joke and nothing but a gift shop. <laughs> so if he doesn't get in, at least there's that. At least it's not really that big of a deal. But on the other hand, it's about damn time that he's getting some actual acknowledgement from the industry. Especially because, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, there's some people in the higher-ups at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame who, at least at one point in time, hated his guts. And there might be a bit of a political bend to this. Really? Yes. So stay tuned, Chris. Okay. <laughs> because we'll get to it. All right. Well, let's uh, move on to the subject at hand here. As I mentioned earlier, Warren's coming off the 70s, pretty much a drunken mess, but still functioning. And he was able to put together an album to open up the decade in February of 1980. It's called Bad Luck in Dancing School. And like the records we talked about in our last episode, it's chock full of all-star musicians doing session work for them. Talking about Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstadt is on this record. Those are both old friends of Warren's. And of course, all of the Eagles at different points, Don Henley, Glenn Frey, Don Felder, Joe Walsh, 
And this is also right before the Eagles broke up. So he managed to get all of the Eagles when they were at their highest stress levels <laughs> and also <laughs> all at their angriest with each other. So that's pretty good that Warren was able to be so appealing that those guys would be willing to come into the studio and, and record with him. So the leadoff single is a track called A Certain Girl that is a cover of a song that was originally made famous by the Yardbirds. I can't reveal her name until she's mine. Name? I can't tell you. Ah, I've tried to make her time and time again. Warren's version was not particularly successful. It hit number 57 on the Billboard Hot 100. Not terribly impressive compared to most pop acts, but in the context of Warren's career, it was the only song besides Werewolves of London to ever chart in the Billboard Hot 100. Oh so, <laughs> That is sad. Yeah, it is. It's very sad. Do you think it was a good pick to be the leadoff single for Bad Luck Streak at Dancing School? I look at it, I don't know what else would even work as a lead-off single for, for Bad Luck. I don't know what would hit the public's attention. I mean, Jungle Works sure to be the summer hit, you know? <laughs> I, hey, that's let's talk about that one. Jungle Work is a very cool song. particular for me, I just like songs about the Cold War in Latin America. To name check a few, All She Wants to Do is Dance by Don Henley, Undercover of the Night by uh, the Rolling Stones. I said Jungle Work not by means of me thinking it's a bad song. I love it. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it would be, I don't see the broad appeal of Jungle Work. Oh, absolutely. As a single, yeah. Zivon always seems to be playing the long game, where this song feels like it's, it's it, 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 it takes no stance on what America's doing in Latin America. It's just him describing what jungle work looks like. Yeah. It's just him talking about what a special weapons and artillery unit would look like from a mercenary group funded by the U.S. government in these Soviet-held areas, and I love it. Yeah, he's not criticizing foreign policy. Right. If you look into the lyrics of, say, All She Wants to Do Is Dance, there's some very pointed commentary in that track. Exactly, it's obvious. Whereas this is, he's, he's more about talking about their MAC-10s. Yeah. Their Ingram <laughs> guns, you know? What sort of Jeep the Russian-funded paramilitaries are driving? There's no real social commentary in Jungle Work at all, I don't think. Yeah. I think that makes it kind of fun. It makes it timeless is what it does. Sure. A different song off the album that I think could have been a single is one of his most famous tracks called Play It All Night Long. Now, there's a lot to unpack with this this track, because this song has connections to a couple of other very famous songs. In fact, it kind of connects into what a lot of people think is one of the great feuds of rock and roll. The lyrics in Play It All Night Long go, Sweet Home Alabama, play that dead band song, turn those speakers up full blast, play it all night long. So it is a direct reference to Sweet Home Alabama. Brutal. Yeah. Play that dead band song. That is an absolutely savage way to put that. (laughs) So for those who don't know, Sweet Home Alabama is a response record uh, to Neil Young. So let's unpack this a little bit. In the mid-70s, Neil Young writes two songs, one called Southern Man and the other called Alabama. 
and both of them are extremely harsh social criticism about the American South on the account of the what he projected as rampant racism down south. Now, Neil's Canadian, but this is sort of his read, if you will, of the American South, as that it's just this hellscape of racism. A couple years later, Leonard Skinner, who were fans of Neil Young, took offense to these two tracks and wrote Sweet Home Alabama sort of as a response, scoring a bigger hit, number one, than either of Neil's songs, and, and also, in my opinion, writing a better song. Okay, all right. Okay, you don't agree? <laughs> I'm reluctant to ever say anything that Skinner did is better than anything that Young did, but we'll... I think this might be the one thing, and I think Neil would agree with me. It's ultimately your show, Joe, so just, go, just <laughs> keep on moving, brother. <laughs> we'll, we'll make do. Okay. <laughs> so they write Sweet Home Alabama, score a big hit with it. They sort of become friendly with Neil Young because Neil immediately notices and has said in interviews that he really likes the song too. And it made him re-examine his own lyrics. And I think he agreed ultimately with Skinner that he did paint with way too broad of a brush as far as the American South goes. Especially because like racism is everywhere. There's the lyric the in, in, in Alabama they love the governor. Boo, boo, boo. We yeah. all did what we could do. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely elements of... Yeah, I, no, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's an interesting quote-unquote feud that really wasn't one because did you know that Ronnie Van Zant was buried wearing a Neil Young Tonight's the Night shirt? I did not know that. My point being is that there was a lot of genuine mutual respect between these two artists, and that was really exemplified much later on by a drive-by truckers song called Ronnie and Neil from their 2001 album, Southern Rock Opera. What I did not know before listening to this Warren Zevon record, and now we're finally getting to the point. Sorry, everybody. Here we are now just a couple of years removed from this back and forth with Neil and Leonard Skinner, and now Warren Zevon is writing a track called Play It All Night Long, which is absolutely one of his best songs, maybe ever. And it's like a direct shot back at Leonard Skinner. And the American South in general. Totally. It's like the rural American South. Daddy's doing Sister Sally. Grandma's dying of cancer now. The cattle all have brucellosis. We'll get through somehow. Sweet home Alabama, play that dead band song. Okay, so we just heard Warren singing about, what is that disease? Brucellosis? Yeah. <laughs> I think that prompted David Letterman to say maybe the only American popular musician to ever use the term brucellosis in one of his songs. <laughs> it shows that the, the intelligence of Zevon. I don't even think he had to look that up. I feel like he's just like, oh, I read something about cattle getting brucellosis at some point. It works in the song right. with the meter, so brucellosis it is, you know? And it makes for a very funny track. Yeah, it's great. So how do you read the lyrics of this song? What do you think Warren is ultimately saying? So I don't even know that it's necessarily about the back and forth between between Neil and, and Skinner. Not about the feud, but whatever they Specifically were. the feud. I think that it's Warren Zevon, mm -hmm. and I think there's a certain level of classism. He's basically just picking off all the stereotypes of the American South, which many true. Yeah. <laughs> Let's well, be clear. <laughs> well, one of the stereotypes he doesn't really drill in on is what started all this, the racism. 
I don't think he cares about that. Yeah. I think he has more of an issue with the sort of the aesthetic mm. of the entire rural southern life. You think his social criticism is perhaps a little more relevant or a little sharper than Neil's originally was? Well, I mean, the song does begin, Grandpa pissed his pants again, <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but Neil paints such a broad brush. I think he his vision of the South is, like, truly warped. Okay, also, I don't necessarily see this as a total condemnation of the American South. Any sort of moralization that comes to the song, the, the listener is bringing with them. Oh, okay. There's an artistic ambivalence. All great art should be somewhat ambivalent. It yeah. shouldn't necessarily, I don't think, take a stance. But I don't think much of Zeebon's work does. And then uh, just uh, another little trivia here. Drive-By Truckers, who wrote the Ronnie and Neil song, they also covered this track in 2009. I have heard that. And it, oh, is, okay. it is a great cover. Sure. Absolutely. So let's talk about a couple of the other tracks you find on Bad Luck Streak in Dancing School. One that's particularly funny, I think, is called Gorilla, You're a Desperado. What's interesting about that is this is the track that Don Henley showed up to do backing vocals on. And if you listen closely, when they get to the Desperado part of the song, he sings the word Desperado just like he did on his Eagles song. <laughs> So kind of a fun little throwback there. And, you know, this speaks to one of my favorite things about Warren Zevon is that it's very common for critics to absolutely love Warren, but at the same time despise the Eagles. And the Eagles are all over Warren's 70s and early 80s stuff. Warren was very good friends with Don Henley. Yeah. So what are some of the songs from Bad Luck Streak that jump out to you? Genie Needs a Shooter is interesting. Just the whole story behind that, with the fact that it was, he just loved the title. Yeah, so Bruce Springsteen's manager, John Landau, mentioned to Warren that Springsteen had a song called Janie Needs a Shooter, and Warren misheard him and thought, that is a great title, and had some conversations with Springsteen, something like egging him on to finish writing the song or you know, asking if they could co-write or, or something or another, but... In the end, Springsteen just gave him his blessing and said, take the title, you write a song with it. See what you come up with. Supposedly he helped him write it a little bit too, actually. Uh, yeah, I believe it. Yeah. yeah. But to me, it's interesting that Warren Zevon so fully misunderstood what the title of the song was even referencing. He turned into almost like a film noir sort of thing. Like right. Genie needs a guy who can handle a gun. Like right. Like, she needs a shooter. And the, the Springsteen one's like, she needs a guy who knows how to fuck. Yes. And it's... <laughs> Springsteen's dirtiest fucking song. Sure. Like the, the, when he finally released it, it is almost embarrassing. Like, it made me blush. <laughs> Holy shit. The doctor tears up her insides. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Boss is having some fun on that one. For sure. And then, yeah. And then you would think Warren, being a more chaotic artist, you would think he would be the guy writing the X-rated song. No, he's yeah. writing about, like... Being a gunman rescuing this girl from her overbearing dad. Her father was a lawman. He swore it shoot me dead. Cause he knew I wanted Jeannie. And I'd have her like I said. Jeannie needs a shooter. Shooter like me. There's definitely a sense where I feel like Zevon is, despite how intelligent he is, despite how articulate he can be, there is a certain sort of arrested development in terms of the way he looks at the world. Not uncommon with artists. 
Any other tracks that jump out at you? Empty-Headed Heart, I have a fondness for. That's probably one of his more well-liked ballads. Yeah. He could pull on heartstrings with the best of them. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and actually, the title track, I kind of like. Yes. It's got a good sound. Yeah. Yeah. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. All right, well, let's get to something I know you've been looking forward to talking about. Later that same year, in December of 1980, Warren releases Stand in the Fire, his first live album. I'll let you go off on it here, but what I can say about Stand in the Fire is that it's, one, just an absolutely stellar live album. I think Warren's buddy, David Letterman, said it's the best live album of all time. I don't know if I'm going to go that far. But I put it way up there. I agree with Letterman. Okay. So, and I had not listened to it really prior to us doing this. I'm not a huge fan of live albums in general. I, in general, prefer the studio experience. Deep down, despite my sloppy everything, <laughs> I, I'm i a perfectionist at heart, right? Yeah. And so I don't feel inspired by them. They don't capture for me that moment in the way that would be just actually being there. That is very hard to actually capture. Exactly. Stand in the Fire does that. Yeah. It just blew my mind. I don't think there's a single track that I would cut. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a single rendition of any of the music that he's done prior to this or any of the new stuff that's inferior to the studio. It's impressive, frankly. Does it break your heart that you and I never had the chance to see him play at that level? It does. It is a shame. Yeah, Stand in the Fire is absolutely like the record of a mad, a, a true madman on stage. It's pure punk rock, but it's not punk rock music. Right. I understand why Letterman says it's the best live album of all time. Kick-ass album. You know what it reminds you of almost is like, Jerry, I hate to bring him up because he had like a 14-year-old cousin and his wife, but like when you see like Jerry Lee Lewis. Here we go. Yes. The, the level of pure exuberance and just sheer force of will and just the spirit of rock just going through somebody even though it's piano driven manic energy frankly yeah exactly like you said that is 
the true spirit of rock and roll. And people say rock and roll in a positive sense in any way. That's what, at the end of the day, they're talking about. And it also, to that point, has one of the best titles of any live album. Yeah! Stand in the fire. Come yes. on, man. <laughs> All right. A-plus live record. All right. So, because we're kind of going through this in chronological order, I'm going to swerve off his release schedule for just a moment to tell a funny story that is in both of the major books about Warren. One being I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, which was put together by Crystal Zivon. And another called Nothing's Bad Luck by C.M. Cushions. And they both tell this story. Uh, are you familiar with the show Babylon 5? I'm not quite as big of a nerd as you. Uh, I, I never watched it. Oh, you never watched it? Okay. Yeah. Still not quite as big of a nerd as you, but all right. Correct. Continue. <laughs> okay. Well, if you had seen it, one of the main actors in the early seasons of the show is a guy named Michael O'Hare, who played a character named Jeffrey Sinclair in Babylon 5. Warren's a celebrity at this point, and he was also dating a woman who was an actress and a bit of a minor celebrity in her own right. And at some social event, Warren got the idea that Michael was trying to pick up his girlfriend and trying to flirt with her. So later on, Warren goes to Michael O'Hare's house to confront him about it. And O'Hare denies that he's interested in Warren's girlfriend and Warren does not buy it, and he keeps egging him on, at one point saying, I spit on your mother's grave. Jesus. <laughs> now that triggers Michael into finally just attacking him and yeah. just starting to beat the living shit out of Warren. And it's it gets kind of funny because they're, they're fighting in the backyard, and Warren gets thrown into a koi pond. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and Michael jumps in after him and is just punching him in this uh, koi pond. He punches him so hard, it, it knocks one of Warren's teeth out. Oh, the koi were hurt, right? I just feel uh, bad. I, it's not worried about the koi at this point. It's I just think two idiots fighting each other. <laughs> not the quickest looking <coughs> fish I've ever seen. Spit on your fucking koi. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Warren's girlfriend, of course, calls uh, one of their friends to like come to the house and break this up because this fight's going on for a while. Jesus. And uh, the friend did come over to break it up and... This friend, another weird-ass sort of celebrity name, Aaron Norris, as in the brother of Chuck Norris. What? Yeah. Warren was... <laughs> <laughs> Warren was very good friends with Aaron Norris, and he knew Chuck Norris. And I guess he did, like, some sort of training with Aaron, because Aaron was also a martial arts guy. Real quick, I'll put my hand up here. Yeah. <laughs> How has nobody done a proper documentary of the entirety of Zivon's life? Right. His yeah. shit is so insane. Oh, we're throwing TVs out of windows and shit, like rock star, whatever. Yeah. He's like, oh, I'm going to fight with a koi pond with the guy from Babylon 5, <laughs> and Chuck Norris's brother shows up. Right. What? I mean, Aaron Norris, to me, in this circumstance, sort of reminds me of, like, Charlie Murphy from Chappelle's show. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yes. <laughs> Just in a weird-ass chaotic situation. Very funny. So, if you get either of these books about Warren, they're chock-full of this stuff. There is so many just funny, weird-ass shit that happened to this guy because this dude just did a bunch of weird-ass shit. All right, let's get back to his proper releases here. Bad Luck, Streak at Dancing School, not a particularly big hit, but... Had a single that did land on Billboard, so not a total flop either. So he, he starts working on his next record. It takes him a little while to get it together because he did have a little bit of writer's block. 
But he eventually releases a record called The Envoy in July 1982. Now, if you've ever seen the album cover for this, it's him standing in like an airport hangar with big giant plane behind him and these people kind of walking around and he's he's sort of dressed like a diplomat. The aesthetic he's going for is a secret agent James Bond type. Well, it originated with a natural desire, I think, on my part to play James Bond at some point in my career. Mm -hmm. I've kind of built everything towards that, you know, the album cover. The song The Envoy is about a real-life diplomat that Warren was really inspired by, and The Envoy is a little bit of a concept record because it's sort of Warren's self-insert James Bond story. He sort of wanted to play that character. He wanted to try that character out for a project, and that's kind of what he does on The Envoy, and I think it pays off, at least for the title track. That's one of my favorite songs of his. Looks like another threat to world peace for the Envoy. And it fits right in with songs like Lawyers, Guns, and Money and Jungle Work, which we were talking about earlier. There's a couple of songs worth pointing out here. Another track on the album I really like is called The Overdraft. Yes. And there is an absolutely stellar guitar solo on a song called Charlie's Medicine. And that song is about a drug dealer. A real-life drug dealer who was Warren's drug dealer. Who dies. Who died. Yeah. And Warren went to his funeral, and at some point after that, he wrote this song as sort of a, a tribute to, yeah, a guy who was a dealer, but a guy who was also Warren's. I say drug dealer, but like, it's kind of shitty to just describe him as such, but here he is, memorialized in song as a drug dealer. Well, that's like, yeah, at a funeral, it's like, this, this guy was a doctor. <laughs> and what else? Right. He was a doctor. Yep. Entirety. Yep. Pharmacist would be even more, I guess, <laughs> apropos. <laughs> Anyways. But for me, ultimately, I like the opening couple of tracks from this record, but this was one I started to lose interest as the record went on. I didn't find anything, like, I disliked. I just think I tuned this one out a little bit. When I think about Zevon in the 80s, the one before this and the one after this impressed me a lot more. Sure. For me, I loved it. Okay. And I, the Hula Hula Boys is absolutely one of the funniest songs Zevon's written. So do you know the trivia of what the foreign language spoken part of the song? I do. I mean, sing the chorus, I believe, right? Yes. Yes, that I, that I do know. It's in native Hawaiian, and they're just saying, sing the chorus, sing the chorus. And that's the chorus. That's very funny. <laughs> no, it's really funny. Yeah, yeah I like just, that. And he didn't, like he didn't like talk to him. He just opened up like a, a, a book of, tra- and just, just translated it directly. Just, yeah. yeah. Uh, Let Nothing Come Between You is beautiful, I think. Okay. Sad, but very well put. I think one of the signatures of Zivon through almost his whole discography is every album has some absolutely gut-wrenching ballad that if you really sit and listen with, it can bring you to tears. Yeah, and then, I mean, outside of the other ones you mentioned, I would say Ain't That Pretty At All. I know you don't really care for that song. I think it's it's annoying. So I'm gonna hurl myself against the wall I don't think you have the underlying sort of existential ennui or dread that I have at all moments of my life. <laughs> so when he's talking about throwing himself against the wall oh, just boy. to feel something because it's better than nothing at all, yeah. like 
I feel that, brother. Yeah. And he does have that. He yeah. has exactly what you're talking about. And <laughs> so I wouldn't say it's a bad song. I just say I would just say that's a song that's meant for you. Yeah. And not exactly. For me. Yeah, it's every. You go to the Louvre. Yeah. It's well, nothing here is really that pretty at all. So I guess I'll throw myself <laughs> against the wall. Any criticism I would ever say about Warren <laughs> would always come with the asterisks, but the lyrics are funny. Because these tracks all have some humorous twist that, like, if you just focus on for a moment, you're going to crack up. That's what's so impressive about him, is that if you really dive into the lyrics, there's either something that's going to make you laugh or something that's going to make you cry. I, I would agree 100% on that. Okay. Any other tracks from The Envoy that you'd like to call attention to? We covered the, the big ones, I think. In the outtakes, I think he did Wild Thing. Lord, that song is popular in the 80s. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's all thanks to Major League or what, but Wild Thing is one of the like songs of the 80s, even though it was written in like the 60s, early 60s, right? And yeah, Warren does a version of that too. I listened to the outtake version. It's not bad, but all it makes me think of is just like, Holy shit, another one? I don't know what else to say about that, except that there's way too many 80s versions of Wild Thing. So, as part of the promotional tour to support the Envoy, Warren made his first appearance alongside a gentleman that would become very important to his career, another one of his strong advocates, David Letterman. Mm -hmm. Letterman is arguably Warren's best advocate. Yeah. Keeping his music present on TV, getting his name out there for now younger audiences. I will say this about Letterman, though. He truly seems to be a lover of, of music, specifically American popular music. Absolutely. He jumps up. I mean, you can tell he's excited. He jumps. I, I appreciate that about David Letterman. You can see the level of excitement from Letterman about that. And I think he just truly, in Zivon, saw somebody who was underappreciated was a stellar artist, had a similar sensibility in a lot of ways, a wry sense of humor, a certain intellect, and I, I think maybe a kindred spirit to some extent. Yes, absolutely. So talking about this uh, debut appearance of Warren on The Late Night Show with David Letterman, it's kind of bizarre because these guys weren't close friends at this point. And Letterman was very green at his job hosting his Late Night Show. And both of them are very stilted. It reads as two guys who are both uncomfortable in the seats that they're in, and the audience does not know what to do with it, because there's this great point where Letterman asks about the story of Warren covering his chest with pot roast yes. from, you know, the song Excitable Boys, and Warren confirms that, yes, that is something I did, and he explains why he liked doing it. And then, like, a sentence later, he's talking about Philip Habib, the real-life diplomat from the U.S. State Department, that the envoy is about. So, I mean, there, there's some, like, whiplash of subjects, we'll say, and the audience is just not keeping up with it. And it's an, a very interesting interview, but the people in the studio audience, it must have been over their head. The first of many appearances on Late Night with David Letterman for Warren Zevon, including a particularly famous one that we will get to in our final episode, but I'll leave it at that for now. Want to hear another funny story? Always. All right. So this one relates to us because we are both from Wisconsin. At some point around this time, Warren is playing a show at UW-Madison. And he thought it would be funny to go on stage, play Werewolves of London, finish the song, 
jump up, say thank you, you've been a wonderful audience, and then immediately leave the stage. Yeah. <laughs> so they did that. They actually did that. They didn't just talk about it. They came out, sang the song, said thank you, good night, ran off stage, and just held their position, waited for the audience to stop cheering, and then subsequently start booing, and then get silent. And only then did him and the band come back out and play a big show. Supposedly the longest show of the whole tour, really trying to say, hey... He made it up to him. Right, I, I yeah. Mean, we were goofing. Yeah, we were, we were fucking with you, but you guys are good sports, so we'll give you the best show we can. It must be so tempting when you're an artist like Zevon, who's only had really the one hit, to do some shit like that. Yeah. Do you want to know the wrong way to do this kind of thing? Because there is a different way that another artist has been known to do. I, I want to know. Do you like Steve Earle? I, I love Steve Earle. Oh, is it Copperhead Road? Did he come up? I don't know. Tell, tell the story. I want to hear it. Steve Earle has been known to come out on stage, open the show with Copperhead Road, stop the show, say, so for all you people who are here to see me play Copperhead Road, I did that now. You can go home. And just kind of basically invite yeah. the casual fans to just get the fuck out. I haven't seen video of it, so I don't know if he's doing that to be funny but to me, that strikes me as very bitter and yeah. unpleasant. Well, he's now very dead. I'm pretty... We better be sure of that. Not dead. Is. I, I fucked up. Oh, Christ. Okay, well... <laughs> well, he's now still very much alive. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll have the opportunity to see him. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And oh, I I'm so glad I didn't confuse the idea that Steve Earle was dead and you have to edit that out. <laughs> I've wanted to see him in concert, but the sad thing is, is like, I do know a couple of his other songs. Copperhead Road's my absolute favorite, without a question. Like, if I did see him do that, part of me would be like, dude, fuck you. Transcendental Blues, brother. Look that up after we're done with the pod. Okay. It is a beautiful song. Okay. No, there is it. currently, though, a viral video going around of a man in his probably early 60s who is heavily intoxicated at like a family party it's actually quite wholesome okay and they're trying to get him to sit down and he is just jamming out to Copperhead Road <laughs> and then a dog comes on the screen and he's like I love this dog and he's yeah. like it's very like I said very wholesome but he's like at the dog and they're like you need to sit down grandpa and he's trying to pet the dog and then he just busts his shit like just uh, falls head first into like a cabinet it's wonderful <laughs> Oh, I guess I better sit down. So look that up, followers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm post a link. <laughs> All right. Oh, my God. we got to okay. circle back Woo. here. We are way off track. All right. Should come as no surprise that The Envoy was not a hit. The commercial failings of it did have some consequences. Although, I, I suspect Warren wasn't going to avoid this, even if it had been a mild hit. He got dropped from his record label. Asylum Records slashed their roster by 90% in, like, late 82 or 83. They got some new management. God. Yeah, who looked at the roster and was just like, yeah, let's just cut down it's... to our bare bones and then find some contemporary artists to fill in the gap. That's like... A total cleaning house. That's like Khmer Rouge Cambodia. That's <laughs> like... We're... We got too many. Too many artists. So... He was caught in the line of fire, to continue that uh, metaphor there, but Warren took it very personally. This hurt him, because I think being on a label served as 
some semblance of career stability. So now he was like a free agent. Fortunately for him, he was represented by Irving Azoff, who is the most vicious man in music industry history. Just the devil incarnate. Irving Azoff is one of the most brutal executives in music industry history. He cut his teeth basically being the manager of the Eagles. He runs Ticketmaster now. So <laughs> so he's a villain. Yeah, he's a true villain. <laughs> he's an actual villain in the yeah. music industry. Okay. But um, he was uh, extremely dangerous. You did not want to be on the other side of one of his legal battles. So Warren was, I guess, lucky to be represented by Azoff. And uh, Irving sued Asylum on behalf of mostly the Eagles. But Warren was included in uh, those lawsuits because Azoff... Uh, represented him. So the record executive that ultimately decided to cut all of these artists, including Warren, was a guy named Bob Krasnow. And I only bring him up because he would eventually go on to be one of the people who founded the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, it all makes sense! <laughs> and you know who is someone else who was with Bob in founding the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Jan Werner from Rolling Stone, who totally separate from all of this, absolutely hated Warren's guts. Interesting. So so there's heavy politics here as to why it's taken this long for him to even be considered. Right. For the, for the Hall of Fame. Oh. And this also sort of speaks to perhaps why the Eagles are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a group, but there's been absolutely no consideration for them as solo artists. So a little industry intrigue for those listeners. I'm sure this part won't get cut at all. All right. <laughs> so uh, partially due to being cut from his label and the fact that he had been drinking all during this time we've talked about so far. Not just drinking, but trying uh, some other harder drugs, including cocaine, including, um, was it Darvon? Yeah, Darvon. And... Frighteningly, heroin. He's hit, starting to hit a personal low. Honestly, I feel like Darvon's scarier than heroin somehow. Oh, really? I don't know much about it. But yeah, he was absolutely hooked. Yeah, neither, neither do I. Uh, but no, I. No, no one does. I think it was removed from the market. It's not like a thing anymore. It's not. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, it's not a. Uh, heroin's like the old reliable, you know? That's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every, every artist seems to get on it at some yeah. point or another. But he's pretty much rescued from this low point by another person who would become one of his great advocates. And I'm talking about a very young guy at the time named Andy Slater, who was someone who worked for Irving Azoff's agency. They were considering cutting Warren, too, because, you know, his last two records really weren't moving very much. He had lost his record deal, and it seemed that he wasn't terribly interested in actually working at all because he was in such a depression. So this guy, Andy Slater, decided to be basically his big advocate. It took a long time for Warren to even take his call, but Andy tracked him down and hooked him up with an old college buddy. So Andy Slater was college buddies with Peter Buck from R.E.M., so he introduced the guys in R.E.M., sans Michael Stipe, who was at the time taking a sabbatical from the group, to make some music with Warren. So suddenly, here in the mid-'80s, 
when REM was still very much an underground college radio type band, they were teaming up with Warren to record some demos and also play some live shows. And they called their act Hindu Love Gods. That strikes me as an REM thing, (laughs) but I could be wrong. I guess it could be Warren's idea too. So there's only one album of their music in existence, and that was basically a collection of demos that was released in the 90s. So we're really not going to dive into the Hindu Love Gods. It's not wonderful. Yeah, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but we'll talk about that in the next episode. Okay. But it's important because R.E.M. as a whole, including Michael Stipe, who would come back to the group, would basically help Warren close out the 80s. And they kind of became his house band for a little while. They toured with him. They recorded with him on his next record. And I just think that's a really interesting and appropriate pairing of artists. Warren catches them when his career's kind of at a low point, but their career's just getting started. They would go on to have the commercial success that always eluded him. But in any case... Another major life event that happens in the mid-80s is that Warren finally achieves sobriety in March 1986. We've talked about so much today already, and we talked about it a lot last time, so I don't really have time to dive into all the drunken horror stories. Some of them are very upsetting. Some of them are very depressing. You can find them both in the books about Warren. But at this point in the mid-80s, his... Substance abuse had gotten so out of hand that pretty much everyone who was left in his life was really pressing him to get himself cleaned up, and he finally gave it a a, a real shot. He checked into a rehab, and it it took. He had checked into rehab several times through the 80s, and it didn't land for him until March 1986, which was good because now it had been a long enough time that If he were to put out another record, it would be like a comeback. And that revival did sort of start right on time. There was a Greatest Hits compilation called A Quiet Normal Life, The Best of Warren Zevon, released in October 1986. And then out of nowhere, Werewolves of London was used on the soundtrack and in the film for the movie The Color of Money. Starring Paul Newman and Tom Cruise. Paul Newman in an Oscar-winning performance. Tom Cruise like you've never seen him. An electrifying partnership across the pool halls of America. Director of Taxi Driver and After Hours, Martin Scorsese, takes the hustler to the big time. The power, the rivalry, the glory, the color of money. Used great in the movie, by the way. It's, it's a scene where Tom Cruise is playing pool at some grungy pool hall, and he's acting like a total showboat douchebag, singing along to the song. You know, strokes his hair when they talk about his hair being perfect. Yep, uh, really well used. And this song wasn't chosen at random, you know, for the soundtrack. The director, Martin Scorsese, wanted it specifically because he was another admirer of Warren's. And at some point earlier in the 80s, those two had met, and apparently Scorsese told Warren that it was Warren's music that had really gotten Martin through his own divorce. So he had some very clear emotional attachment to uh, his music, and having this big hit movie using Warren's song was kind of a good way to get some interest, some buzz in the industry for Warren going again. And that would pay off with Warren releasing an album called Sentimental Hygiene in August 1987. 
Yeah, I think it was uh, a song he was doing before the record got out. And I think that was like uh, a party song. You know, oh, I yeah. think it just had good uh, fan reception. And you know what that one's about, right? That one's sort of about an element of superficiality to celebrities very publicly going into sure. rehab and then coming out. And, oh, detox matching. Yeah, 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 yeah. And talking about how, oh, how important it is to be clean and sober. And, and sort of, there's a pontificating element to it that gets a little sure. e- exhausting. You know, I guess this was something about the late 80s. I remember I, I was talking to my mom years ago, and she, and she sort of offhandedly said to me that it was very, quote, trendy to get sober in the late 80s. Sure. And that has always stuck with me because I can't help but notice, but there is like a lot of movie stars and a lot of rock stars, a lot of just celebrities in general who like, yeah, like, I guess like the late eighties, I guess because that generation all were sort of hitting their forties in the late eighties. That's the thing. I think a lot, just a lot of people's bodies are probably shutting down at that point. Right. And I suppose a lot of them are probably starting to kind of fall out of favor with popular culture at that point as well. So that whole spiel was a way to reinject themselves into the zeitgeist. Yeah, it's like a hey, career no, move. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, even even A Dog Can Shake Hands is fun. Maybe one of the greatest titles I've ever heard yeah. of a song. <laughs> I think, obviously, Leave My Monkey Alone, we both agree. Strongly. The, 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 the music video, far better than the song. Oh, no, we totally disagree. Oh, what? I, well... <laughs> oh, come on now. Uh, no, not strongly. I timeless. I love both the song and the video. I don't see one as better than the other. Oh, I think firm pass on I the, the <laughs> song. on the song? To me the song the song's fine. Okay. Song to me is very like of the of the time. The music video, timeless, Joseph. <laughs> yeah, I, I something tells me you're being a little funny. <laughs> it's an okay song. I mean, you know what is timeless about both the song and the video? Genuinely, the presence of George Clinton. Yes, George Clinton is awesome, and uh, he's dancing with Warren in the video, which is very funny. But yeah, if, if you can find it, you can't find like a clean version on YouTube, by the way. You, you'll find some horribly pixelated version sure. uh, of the video, and it's it's hard to even see. But yeah, there's a lot of visuals that are bizarre and very dated. And the song itself was meant to be like a contemporary pop dance track. There is a nine-minute extended club version of this song that is absolute dog shit. It's one of the worst things I've ever heard. I have a lot of patience for extended club remixes or whatever, but this one in particular was done just so poorly. It, it's like anti-music. It's one of the worst things I've ever heard. Well, it's the wrong message for a club in the late 80s, too. I mean, it should be, <laughs> please touch my monkey. Please don't leave my monkey alone. Sure. <laughs> any, any final thoughts on sentimental hygiene? How does this one stack against 
the other two we talked about today for you. You know, it's weird. Initially going into this, having listened to everything one time and yeah. then re-listening before we did the, the actual uh, recording, I'm surprised by the fact that I actually think there's more songs on Sentimental Hygiene that I like than any of the other two albums. Oh, absolutely. That was not my initial impression. Sure. Oh, well, I should say other than, I mean, it's, it's not fair because it's a live album. I mean, oh, Stand in the, the, the Fire is a whole different breed of, yeah, it's great. But, yeah, of the studio albums, it's, I think, my favorite. It hits a sweet spot for me because, and there's so many people who are going to hear what I'm going to say that are going to roll their eyes right out of their head. But I love late 80s music from musicians in their early 40s, <laughs> like Eric Clapton and Steve Winwood <sighs> and Stevie Nicks and Don Henley from this era. I love what they're doing at this time, and Warren's in that class and making that same kind of middle-aged rock that is very well-produced, but at the same time very dated. I don't know. Songs that belong in Michelob beer commercials are just my aesthetic. What can I say? I have no comment. I, 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 <laughs> I there's nothing. If, if you have nothing nice to say, Joe... <laughs> Well, all right. I think we're just about ready to start wrapping up then. There's actually one more album that Zevon released in the 80s. It was called Traverse City. But we're going to cut out a little early today, and we're going to put that one off to our next episode because he only released two albums in the 90s, and so far we've been kind of doing three records per an episode, and I like that speed. So we'll pick up with Traverse City in our next episode. So if you're hoping to hear a little bit about that, Weird ass album. Sorry. We'll have the next episode up soon and we'll get into it then. Before we get to our favorites, just a couple of not exactly high profile covers, more like, uh, here's some trivia. Reconsider Me, one of Warren's best songs. That was the track that Andy Slater was using to really advocate for Warren with various record executives trying to show what Warren was still able to do at this point in his career. One of the things that he did to get some momentum going for Warren was he got the song in front of Stevie Nicks, who recorded a version for an album that she was meant to put out in 1984, but that album was eventually scrapped, and she did not release it in 84, but that recording still eventually did get released on her 1998 box set Enchanted. So I love Warren's original version of Reconsider Me, and I like Stevie Nicks. I do not like her cover. And at the risk of sounding a little tacky, you know that South Park episode where they're calling Stevie Nicks a goat or whatever because of her voice? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there, I, I hear it. You really hear it on her version of Reconsider Me, like more than almost any other song of hers. I, I hate to say it because I don't. I thought that was kind of a lame joke, but that was kind of all I could think of when I was listening to her version of that song. So unfortunately, not a compliment. I think uh, The Pretenders also covered it, but we'll talk about that at some other point. The only other 80s cover that might interest anybody listening was Hank Williams Jr. covered Lawyers, Guns, and Money for his 1985 album, 5-0. That's kind of funny. Bo Cephas himself? <laughs> That's right. Bo Cephas covered a little Z-Von. Wow. Between a rock and a hard place, and I'm down on my luck. 
and it's not a bad cover. All right, let's let's wrap it up here with our favorites. For the 1980s, what are your favorite songs from Warren Zevon? So, Play It All Night Long. Yeah. Jungle Work. Yeah. And then From Stand in the Fire, The Sin, which oh. I believe is unique to Stand in the Fire. And it might be Zevon's most, like, just rocking song. Okay. Boom Boom Mancini and Sentimental Hygiene. Excellent. Okay, those are all good picks, and we have quite a few in common. My top five are Play It All Night Long, Jungle Work, the Envoy, Sentimental Hygiene, and of course, Leave My Monkey Alone. You did not. Leave My Monkey Alone. And I had to make some painful cuts, but I will say my numbers 6 through 10 are probably all from Sentimental Hygiene. Right. I would have thought that, that The Factory would have beat out Leave My Monkey Alone for You. The Factory was my last cut. Yeah. That's my number six. Those are like my my, my, my honorable mentions would be like, it would be The Factory and Even Dogs can, even dogs can Shake Hands. That's another one. I, that was yeah. a painful cut. Yeah, those are that, hard to... What a title on that it's one. It's a great <laughs> album. They're all good albums. The, 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 yes. Sentinel Hygiene is a surprisingly fantastic album. You know what's great so far is that we've done two episodes... And it's just like, he's stayed consistently good. We haven't had to, like, rush over anything. Each time he's put out an album, it's been, like, a proper, impressive release. We have not gotten an Empire Burlesque or Knocked Out Loaded yet. You nailed it. You absolutely <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> All right. But maybe we'll find one in the next episode. Because coming up next... Part 3, Excitable Boys Part 3, Warren Zevon in the 1990s. We're going to cover his 1989 album, Traverse City. Another record he did called Mr. Bad Example. And a record I know you're looking forward to talking about, Mutineer. We're also going to cover his Learning to Flinch live album. I believe that's like an acoustic record, acoustic live show. Not well loved is my understanding. Yeah. And then we will talk about the, the demos that were released as the Hindu Love Gods album. Otherwise, coming up next for this show, one of my solo episodes, it's going to be a deep dive on the discography and career of Wang Chung. Hold your laughter. Uh, (laughs) I can't say who it is because we haven't nailed down a date yet, but I am working on scheduling an interview with a woman who was a famous video vixen from the late 80s and early 90s so we'll see if that happens hopefully that's coming soon and then the big news for you and me is that you and me are going to be at Rockin' Pod in Nashville over St. Patty's Day weekend March 2023 so if you can believe it you can actually meet us in person if you're in Nashville on St. Patty's Day and you also buy a ticket to go to Rockin' Pod. <laughs> Nashville, baby! Yeah! So, hey, how excited are you for that? Oh, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a blast. Yeah, we're going to meet many fellow podcasters. Hopefully we're going to get some fun guest interviews to do at the show. And you don't have a Patreon, so anybody out there who wants to show up and... Uh... You know, buy us a beer. That'd yeah. be that's we'll take that in lieu of Patreon money. Absolutely. No Patreon here, but I will absolutely accept a beer. So if you're down in Nashville, if you're going to Rock and Pod, make sure you come over to the table that me and Chris will have set up. Uh, I'll have stickers, you know, we'll take pictures, we can chat with every, anybody who's there. I'm really looking forward to just meeting people, including yeah. fellow podcasters. I think it's going to be a great time. So more on that coming later. Otherwise, to wrap up, 
I have to cite the books I mentioned earlier, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, The Dirty Life and Times of Warren Zevon by his ex-wife Crystal Zevon, who put that together. Really, it was a compilation of stories and statements and all this stuff from people who were close to Warren in his life. It's an absolutely stellar biography of the guy. So that's absolutely my first recommendation. But another more traditional but also very respectable biography is called Nothing's Bad Luck, The Lives of Warren Zevon by C.M. Cushions. So definitely check that one out as well. All right, well, that's all I got of the three songs we had in common here. Play It All Night Long, Jungle Work, and Sentimental Hygiene. What song should play us out? Play it all night long, brother. Play it all night long. Play that rock and roll. Play it all night long. Grandpa pissed his pants again. Don't give a damn Brother Billy has both guns drawn He ain't been right since Vietnam Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the big four things you can do to support this show that don't cost a dime. Number one, listen to the show. If you're hearing this, that means you did that one already. Thank you. Your time is valuable, and there is an infinite amount of content out there. So you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means a great deal to me. Number two, if you like what we did here, please recommend the show to family, friends, or anyone you know looking for a podcast, particularly about music. Share our links in subreddits, Facebook groups, and recommendation threads. Whatever you can do is highly appreciated on my end. Number three, find us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at Play That Podcast. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Play That Podcast. And subscribe to our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash C slash Play That Rock and Roll. Lots of great supplemental material like photos and vlogs on all three platforms. As Play That Rock and Roll is very much meant to be a content hub, as well as a podcast. And finally, the big ask. Number four, please give us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I know this part is a hassle, but it really does help the show a great deal, because it gives me something I can point to when pitching the show to potential guests. The more social media followers and positive ratings the show has, the better chances I have for booking high-profile guests for interviews. So if you take a moment to give us even just a five-star rating, you are actively giving us a tool to do bigger and better things here on this show. But whatever the case, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here at Play That Rock and Roll. Be sure to join us next time for more great stories and music from the world of classic rock. The big thing that Wadi Watel appreciated about Warren is that he's the one who hooked up his internet. Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh boy. Maybe I'll put that as an outtake. <laughs> it's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 